We are in week two of a series called Truth in Love. You can't have one without the other because it's all about Jesus and he's both. He is both truth and love. And our kind of core text that's driving our conversation for these few months is uh, what we looked at last week, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. That really, if truth is inside of love, we can't have one without the other. And, and, and that we believe God wants to grow us up or mature us, especially in the difficult conversations. To find a way to articulate truth while in love, because it's the only way to really reflect who it's all about. It's all about Jesus. And today we're going to transition into a topic that might not seem like it's that crucial of a topic for our day, but I believe it's an area where the church might be losing some credibility where she desperately needs it, and that is the topic of religious liberty. The topic of religious liberty, and some of what we'll talk about this morning, you'll say, well, yeah, I agree with that concept, but I know some people say that in a different way. But we believe that words matter. We're the people of the word who believe we're called to speak the word in truth and in love. And so the way we talk about these things either earn us credibility to our message or they cost us credibility to our message. So as we approach the topic of religious liberty, the question I want to set out, and not for a verbal answer, but for you to think in your heart, is America a Christian nation? Is America a Christian nation? And as I've asked this question to several people from several different walks of life and age groups, what I've heard is, not anymore, or no, not at all. And what not anymore implies is there was a time when America was a Christian nation. So maybe this question's better asked, was America a Christian nation? If if we're not today, meaning I don't think every American claims to be a Christian, I would agree with that, or America does not as a whole represent the moral life and standard of Christ, I would agree with that. The question is, did she ever? Was that the point of it all? Maybe the better question is, should America be a Christian nation? And the answer is, it depends on what we mean by Christian nation. It's a little bit of a trick question, which is why my wife wouldn't answer it when I asked her. Are we a Christian nation? She's like, I feel like that's a trick question. I'm not answering that question. Is America a Christian nation? Well, it depends on what we mean by a Christian nation. And so what I want us to look at, and we're going to get a little bit um, maybe academic this morning in the introduction, but then we're going to look at a text, and then God willing, we're going to look at a couple case studies at the end before we transition to the Lord's table. But to lay a foundation, let's talk about first what America is not before we talk about what she is. First of all, America is not a monarchy. We would agree with the fact that America is not governed or ruled by a king or queen who inherits that rule uh, through the concession of family line. We agree with that. Many of our founding fathers came from monarchical rule, but that's not what our establishment is here in America. Secondly, we would say America is not a dictatorship. Meaning there's not a ruler who took it not by inheritance but by force, right? There's not a, 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 a um, not just not a single ruler, but there's not a ruling party like the Communist Party in China that, that we don't exist under a dictatorship. Maybe we would be inclined to think America is a democracy as contrasted with those two. But technically America is not truly a democracy. A true democracy is that we are ruled by a majority vote of the people. 
the fact is there are things constantly that our government is deciding on that we didn't get the chance to have a voice about. So we do get to vote on some stuff if we're super involved and engaged and know when little local elections are and whatnot. But we don't vote on everything, so we're not technically a democracy. And so maybe be like, okay, well, you got me. We're a democratic republic. Well, not technically. So technically, a democratic republic would say that the people represent, uh, elect rather representatives who then rule and govern. And that might sound like the right answer if we've been out of school for a long time. Yes, we elect people and they rule. That's not technically true. Technically, what America is, is this bizarre little experiment called a federal constitutional democratic republic. Which means we elect representatives who rule under the authority of the Constitution. And they have no authority and no rule apart from the Constitution. And to protect them from ruling apart from the Constitution, we separated in a federal uh, viewpoint the branches of government to help divide power so that one person can't misuse, abuse, or disobey the Constitution. That's why we have the branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government is to protect that the Constitution will be followed. It technically rules while representatives govern. You say, why is any of that important for church this morning? Because what that means is that America is not a theocracy. And what I would submit to you is, and we don't want it to be, and we need to make sure that what we're saying doesn't sound like we want it to be. Because a theocracy, a a people governed by their theology, sounds like it could be appealing to a Christian. But the fact is, about one out of every five countries represented in the world, over 20% of the countries represented in the world, actually are theocracies. Most of them are in North Africa and the Middle East. Countries with names like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Malaysia. Most of them are Islamic theocracies. We see those as places where people don't have freedom. Places where there's hostile rule. That represents more than 20% of the nations in the world. Another 5% are either hostile to religion altogether or they strictly govern the expression of religion. Countries like North Korea and China and Cuba, Vietnam, many of the former Soviet republics. These authoritarian theocracies, well, quite frankly, that's what our founding fathers left to establish something new where people had the freedom to choose on their own. We declared our independence from, at the time, a a theological monarchy, (laughs) if there's such a thing. We declared our freedom with a statement that all people are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So even they recognize that there was a creator. I don't believe all of our founding fathers believed this to be the inerrant, infallible word of God. I know a lot of pastors talk that way on July 4th, Sunday or whatever. And the fact is, I think many of our founding fathers were influenced by good things from Christendom. But many of them did not believe what we believe. And for us to try to make them align with us loses us credibility as well. The fact is they believe that people had the choice as created in the image of God to choose to worship God or choose to reject God. Which, by the way, 
is what God believes as well about his own creation. <laughs> and so this, this declaration of independence was formed. And for about two decades, there was tr- this experiment was looking pretty fragile. There was tremendous unrest between the states. Most of the southern states had officially adopted Anglicanism as their official religion. And so the problem is there were a group of Baptist preachers who were being discriminated against. There's a lot in Baptist history that we did not speak up about it what we should have. But this is one area where we did. Baptist preachers said, we're being discriminated against. We're not allowed to perform weddings. We're not being allowed to perform funerals. We're not respected in the public square. This is discriminatory. And those Baptist preachers, specifically in the state of Virginia, went to the governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, and said, hey, this isn't right. And Thomas Jefferson, not an overly religious man, believed in the idea of freedom. And so through the influence of these Baptist preachers, he drafted a religious rights or a religious liberty document to govern the state of Virginia. It's one of the things in his life he was most proud of. On his tombstone, he insisted, he wanted written, uh, that he was the writer of the Declaration of Independence, the, re- the author of the Religious Liberty Bill in Virginia, and that he was the president of the University of Virginia. He never mentioned that he was president of the United States or what role he played in in the Bill of Rights because he absolutely was an influencer. This was an important document that was then used to help shape what we call the Bill of Rights. The First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. The thing that really rules the day. And in the very First Amendment of this ruling, governing document, it says this. The first thing they thought they needed to say. Congress shall make no law respecting an uh, establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We don't need the government to respect us. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Just don't prohibit us. That was, that was the vision for religious liberty. We don't need to be endorsed by the government. We just don't want to be impeded by the government. The rest of the First Amendment, this nice run-on sentence, Congress shall not make a law respecting religion or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. This bizarre ideal called freedom of religion and freedom of speech meant the government will not promote or prohibit any certain religion. Thomas Jefferson is quoted as saying that the freedom of religion is the most inalienable and sacred of all human rights. Is America a Christian nation? If what we mean by the question, is America a Christian nation, do we live in a place where we have the freedom to be Americans, uh, to be Christians rather? Then the answer is yes, we have the freedom to be Christians or not. So is the goal that we're forcing religious views down lost people's throats or is the truth in love we live in a place where we gloriously get to believe what we believe and we're protected in having the right to do so? So that's the history lesson of freedom of religion. Now, what does God's word say and how can we apply that to modern life? Please grab your Bible if you don't have one. There's one underneath the seat in front of you. 
and if you don't own a Bible, please keep that. That's our gift to you today. Um, and so I invite you to grab it. Let's hold it up in the air and let's say this together this morning. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Awesome. I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages. If you're using your phone or your tablet, you can just scroll there. Or if you're using the app, it's at the bottom. But if you're using a good old-fashioned paper Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and put a finger there and then turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to first read in 1 Peter chapter 2, then we'll flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, put a finger there. And then we'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read a good bit of verses this morning just to lay the groundwork. We're going to quickly draw some conclusions from these texts and then look at some case studies this morning. Beginning in verse number 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe this is speaking to all those who are in Christ, not just to the Jewish believers of the day. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy, mercy that's new every morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who don't believe the same stuff we believe. Honorable. That's an important word. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds. By the way, when they speak against you as they have the constitutionally protected right to do so, (laughs) they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. People ask me all the time, what's God's will for life? This is the will of God, that by doing these things, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, not by censoring them, by living holy lives. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as an excuse or as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. All right, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at this passage. Then we're going to unpack them real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, here's this word again, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and, here's this concept of honorable, dignified in every way. And again, this idea of of God's will. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up 
as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Here's the first thing I want us to observe in these texts as we talk about what our role is in truth and love as the followers of Jesus in this political climate. Number one, we belong to another kingdom. We belong to another kingdom. I am grateful that I am an American. I have traveled enough in the world to truly believe there's nowhere better to live. I'm incredibly grateful that I'm an American. But it is not my highest identity or my most important identity. I belong to another kingdom, not of this world, not made with human hands. And my highest allegiance is to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so my mission in life is not to shape this kingdom to look like that kingdom. It's to live like I belong to that kingdom in the midst of a fallen kingdom. I'm a sojourner and an exile. I'm I'm a foreign alien in a hostile world. And my mission is not for everybody to endorse my faith. It's to live out my faith. Not needing them to tell me they're proud of me for doing so or agreeing with me. When I was young and and growing up, one of the most influential evangelicals was a guy by the name of Jerry Falwell, pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church, founder of the great Liberty University, which now has over 100,000 students at Liberty University. But he also started another organization where he sought to give the people of God a voice in the political arena. Unfortunately, he gave that organization the worst name ever, the Moral Majority. Here's the thing. The mission in life is not for the majority to follow us. Nowhere in Scripture does it talk about the fact that the broad path would be towards the kingdom of God. It said the narrow path, the difficult path, by definition, the minority path would lead towards the kingdom of God. So this isn't about thinking we're the majority or feeling like we're the majority politically. It's about living as light in a dark world. Because we belong to another kingdom. By the way, the name was flawed also because the first word was moral, moral majority. And we've seen a whole lot of leaders from the old moral majority that weren't very moral. Maybe the reality is we've lost our influence in the culture because our morals aren't better than the culture at large. Maybe the problem is in the church, not outside the church, for why we have lost influence in the culture. We belong to another kingdom. We must look like it. It's interesting to me that freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of the press are in the same sentence in the First Amendment, which means the culture at large is allowed to speak against me. They can call me names. They can disagree with me. They can write cartoons that make fun of my faith. I'm not supposed to be so insecure as a follower of Jesus that I can't handle people not agreeing with my views. And freedom of the press. The press doesn't have to agree with the church. The church is supposed to stand on the unchangeable, unshakable word of God, not needing anybody's approval. I don't care if an editor of a magazine agrees with my faith. I won't stand before his throne one day. Why are we so easily offended? People who don't believe what we believe are allowed to express that. It's called freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and freedom of the press. 
If we want their position to change, then we need to introduce them to Jesus lovingly. And in the meantime, let them say what they say. Why are we so rattled? Why are we so easily offended? We live in a day. We live in a day where the modern thought is, if you disagree with me, you're a bigot and you're hateful. Here's the problem. That has infected the church. We think if somebody disagrees with us, they're a bad person. I can't believe they made fun of us. Time out, y'all. Can we have some maturity and some stamina and some backbone for the things we believe? The culture isn't supposed to agree with us. We belong to another kingdom. Number two, it's all about Jesus. (laughs) Ultimately, this isn't about political views or political systems, or political machines. It's about Jesus. We don't submit to the governing authorities because we agree with them, and when we don't, we don't submit. We submit for the Lord's sake because we exist for the glory of the one true King. It's all about Him. It's not about my comfort zone. It's not about people accepting me. It's about my allegiance to the King of Kings, the one who's worthy to be praised. It's all about Jesus. It's actually not about America. It's not about our flag. It's about the cross. The third thing I see in this text is that as the people of God, we are called to be men and women of honor. We are called to be men and women of honor. And we could substitute the word there, honor, for love if we wanted to. If we are people of truth but not of love, we're not actually people of love. If we are people of love but not people of truth, we are not actually people of truth. And here's the deal. I am so disheartened by how dishonorable many truth speakers are today in our culture. And I'm going to say this this morning, and this isn't meant to, whatever. Like, here's the deal. Send your emails, I'll forward them to Lance. Like, I... There's a question mark today about whether or not our president is actually a born-again Christian, evangelical or not. Some people passionately believe he is born again, he is a Christian, he got saved sometime prior to the election cycle. Others say, no, he says he is because he wanted to buy the evangelical vote. My opinion is that really isn't any of our business and we won't know until we get to the next life and only Donald Trump and Jesus know the answer to that question. What I do know is he doesn't speak like it. He doesn't tweet like Jesus. And if we don't speak up and say that, if we think blind endorsement of a man somehow pleases Jesus when his language is so dishonorable and undignified, we lose credibility for the cause of Christ. The way that he speaks about humans creating the image of God who disagree with him is insecure and offensive. I love you. We're called to be people of honor. If we don't live in a way that communicates dignity and honor, how can we claim to be in the truth? How is that light shining in the darkness? This morning I saw Bob Goff tweeted, From the scriptures, love is kind. 
And then he said, if my version of love isn't kind, it's something else altogether. Man, where's the kindness in our culture going? It's supposed to come from us. We're not supposed to demand that they be kind to us. We're supposed to be kind to everyone. To walk with honor towards everyone because we believe they bear the image of our God. Therefore, they have value and worth. Some of us fight for the unborn while we mistreat the born. We're called to honor. Number four, we are called, as clear as the scriptures can be, we are called to pray for our leaders, not just the ones we agree with. We are called to pray for our leaders. Old Testament talks about that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whichever way he desires. We pray because we think that's where the power lies. We pray for our leaders. I've heard people say, and when I say I've heard people say, I have said in moments that I'm not proud of, I'm so disgusted by the whole lot, we should fire them all and start over. You ever, you ever said that out loud? I've heard some of you say that out loud. We should fire them all and start over. Here's the problem. We would start over with a group of men and women populating the branches of government who are just as fallen, just as broken, and just in need of the rescue, the direction, the guidance, the wisdom, and the love of Jesus Christ. So let's pray for the ones we've got. Instead of pretending like our current leaders are our biggest problem or our biggest solution. Our solution is Jesus. So let's just pray for who he's placed there. Believe in he didn't fall asleep at the wheel. When a leader I don't like gets elected, God didn't take a day off. He has bigger purposes than our comfort zone because he's building a kingdom. That isn't just American. <laughs> it's global. It's multi-generational. It's multinational. Let's pray for our leaders. There's no other biblical response. Even the ones we disagree with. Quickly, number five. Our view of the culture, of politics, of the political system must be gospel-centered. Our God and Savior desires that all people be saved. The reality is many of the people we see as an opposition are, are just outside the truth. And if we're so busy fighting and being as contentious as they are, how are we going to point them to the love of Jesus? If your coworkers know not to bring up politics with you, they probably aren't going to bring up religion with you either. Let me say that again. If your coworkers know better than to bring up politics with you, they probably aren't going to bring up religion either, which means we've lost an opportunity to speak to the heart of people who will spend an eternity somewhere. How we talk about this, these things is either in a way that reflects the love of Christ or abuses it, distorts it, robs it of credibility. If the gospel message is so good and needs to be proclaimed, then let's carry ourselves with all lesser topics with grace, with dignity, and with honor. We don't want the government to endorse our views. 
We just don't want their interference. We don't need the government's approval or help in proclaiming Jesus. Jesus didn't require for everybody to receive him. In Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler, it says, rejected Jesus and went away sad. And do you know what Jesus did? He let him walk away. And he didn't call him any bad names on social media. A few chapters later, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was grieved that his Jewish brothers and sisters were rejecting him. And you know what he let them do? Reject him. Because he understands the image of himself that we have the right to choose or reject the grace of God. Which means my neighbor has the right to choose or reject the grace of God. My role in his life is to shine as an attractive light that draws them towards the love of God. Not yell at them because we think they're coming after our guns. So let's look at a couple case studies and let's see how we connect truth and love in this political climate. The first one is of a story that happened just this summer that caused quite a firestorm. Now, let me say this kind of the preface to the story. In July, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, uh, the leader of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, a great man who does a lot of great work for the Lord, who... Um, has decided to get really political uh, since Donald Trump's election. He called for a national day of prayer in the U.S. on Sunday mornings in churches to stop and pause and pray for President Trump, which sounds like a great thing. We did not do that here, and I didn't bring it up, and I didn't explain why. I'll explain right now why we didn't, because Franklin Graham never called for a day of prayer during the Obama administration which makes it feel a little hypocritical to me. Makes it feel a little politically motivated to me. The fact is we're supposed to pray for all of our leaders at all times. So we as a church did not participate in this day of prayer for President Trump, and that's why. And you don't have to agree with that because you have the freedom of choice. So um, on that particular Sunday when Franklin Graham had asked evangelical leaders to pray for Donald Trump. Donald Trump was playing golf at a golf course just outside of Washington, D.C., near Pastor David Platt's church. David Platt's an incredible man, uh, former pastor of the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, and then he was the president of the International Mission Board. Now he serves as the, the pastor of McLean Bible Church just outside of D.C. in Virginia. Multi-service uh, church, they have a whole bunch of services. And so in in the middle of one of their multi-services, the last service of the day, if I recall correctly, he steps off stage to prepare his mind for a moment because they were about to take the Lord's Supper. One of his pastoral staff walked up to him and said, I just got a phone call from the Secret Service. That's an interesting way to start a conversation, right? He said, they informed me that President Trump is on his way here. He's only five minutes away. He's asking for you to pray for him. He heard that this day of prayer thing is going on, and he says he needs prayer, and he's requesting prayer. David Platt said, okay, let me figure out what I'm going to say. So David Platt walked out in front of his congregation. He read the text that we read earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge that prayer and supplication 
He read that whole text. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. And then he prayed the most gospel-saturated prayer over President Trump. You can Google it, look it up later. I think it's perfectly worded prayer, given that he had five minutes to gather his thoughts. Wow. Because you know sometimes as preachers, we preach while we're praying. He preached the gospel over President Trump in the form of a prayer, right? And here's what happened. People lost their minds. It became an immediate firestorm. People in this great church lost their minds. And when I say lost their minds, I mean on both sides of the topic. There were some who were outraged that he prayed over Donald Trump. That's a political endorsement. Why would you do that? Even though he read the scriptures explaining why he was doing what he's doing. And then there were other people who lost their minds because they thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen in the world because he's Jesus reincarnated. Sorry, that was sarcastic. And before the day was over, actually early the next morning, David Platt had to write a letter of explanation to his congregation to re-explain what he did. And let me just explain to you, friend, if a pastor gets up in a Bible church and reads the Word of God and then does what it says and we have a problem with it, the problem wasn't the pastor. The problem is we don't really possess a biblical worldview. We think the Bible belongs in a little compartment and my politics belongs somewhere else. And that is a false narrative. The Scriptures are to shape my view of everything and everyone. Which he said a lot nicer than I just said it to his congregation. But I would say to those who think that was the greatest thing in the world, no, that's just biblical obedience. And here's what I would challenge the conservative church of Jesus Christ with today. If this bothers you, then I would encourage you, you need to submit to the scriptures. You need to walk in truth and love. If this thrills you, but this doesn't, you need to submit to the scriptures and walk in truth and love. Because I know a lot of us who would have heard this story very differently in this room if this had been the first picture up. And here's the thing. The call to pray for our leaders isn't contingent upon whether we agree with their politics or not. As a matter of fact, the less we agree with their politics, the more we should probably pray for them if we truly think we have a biblical worldview. That's case study number one. Case study number two comes a lot closer to home, right here to our beloved Fort Worth. This summer, the city of Fort Worth hosted the Metroplex Atheists Educational Summit. While we were hosting that summit, the Lamp Post and Sundance Square had banners on them that proclaimed, In No God We Trust. I found out about this because many of my friends on social media shared this with tremendous outrage, saying these should be taken down. I'm offended by this. What I would lovingly say, truth and love, if this is not okay, then we should turn in all of our money. If it's not okay to say in no God we trust, then we shouldn't be using dollar bills that say in God we trust. 
if one is constitutionally protected but the other is not, I think that makes us hypocrites. I'm not telling you to agree with them. Don't abandon God. But let's afford them the same freedom that we're requesting. By the way, maybe if we respectfully allow them the freedom, we will earn enough credibility to actually have a good, healthy conversation with an atheist. Hey, why do you believe this? When did you first become an atheist? What's your church experience been like? Have you met a bunch of jerks at church who've told you you're not allowed to believe and know God? Maybe if we respond with dignity and honor and grace, we earn a seat at the table to have necessary conversations with somebody. If one's okay and the other isn't, maybe the problem isn't the culture. It's the church's view of religious liberty. Okay, here's another one. Another case study. (laughs) Prayer in public schools. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know where things went sideways for us as a country? The minute we kicked God out of public schools. And I want to say, hold the phone. I think it's sad that the majority of Christians are no longer comfortable with prayer in public schools, but I don't think that's a reflection of what should be law. My question is, if we're going to require children in a government school to pray, which God are we going to force them to pray to? Does each president that we elect get to pick the God of the, of the term? Are we going to alternate God, the God of the month club? Which God? I believe it is constitutionally appropriate that in government schools, children are given the right to pray on their own or to not pray on their own. Maybe it's weird for you to hear a pastor say that. Does prayer belong in public schools? Listen, prayer exists in public schools. Every time they take a test. Dear Jesus, you know I didn't study. I believe that the government shouldn't force our kids to pray. But I also believe the government should allow me to place my kids in a school where prayer is accepted and practiced. I believe I have a constitutionally protected right to put my children in a Christian school. And while I'm here, I'm just going to say this really, really quick in case we do get to vote on this as Texans. I also believe that I have a constitutionally protected right to protect my tax dollars that are going to government schools and instead be allowed to either be given a tax break or a voucher system of some sort to apply that towards the religious education of my choice. But in the meantime, I'm not trying to force kids who don't know God to pray to Him. Does that sound like religious freedom? Does that sound like truth and love? Quickly, last one. So you might not be a sports person, but maybe you know these people. This is Tim Tebow the greatest quarterback in the history of the University of Florida. Go Gators. I did not know this uh, because he was sick and wasn't at the first service. My youngest son is wearing a Tim Tebow jersey today, ironically. The greatest Gator ever. He was the greatest college quarterback I've ever seen play. Not so much in the NFL. I believe he loves Jesus. Just not enough for Jesus to have turned him into a great NFL quarterback. 
he made a habit of being very vocal about his faith. As a matter of fact, he said the only reason that he went to the NFL was to enlarge his platform for the singular purpose of pointing people to Jesus Christ. And he has used that platform very well for the kingdom of God. But man, he got a lot of heat for praying publicly, for doing the TiVo. The other athlete here is Colin Kaepernick, who also was a pretty inconsistent NFL quarterback. But he's also kneeling, but not as much for a religious cause as for a political or cultural cause. Kneeling in protest during the singing of the national anthem for the cause of racial harmony. And it's interesting how I've heard very few people of color bash him. But white Christians who love Tebow have dogged on Colin Kaepernick for exercising his First Amendment right to dissent. And what I would lovingly say, truth and love, if I'm okay with one of these pictures and I'm not okay with the other, I don't think I understand freedom. I didn't say if you agree with one and not the other. Maybe, you, maybe you're a person who's like, I think nobody should ever kneel during the flag. I think that's not the appropriate way. You have the freedom to believe that. I'm not saying agree with their decision, but if one like crawls in your skin and the other one you're like, yay him. Maybe we don't understand religious freedom as much. And the reason this is crucial this morning is because if we truly carry the message of hope and the message of rescue and the message of salvation and the message of resurrection, if we really carry that message, then the way we talk about everything else is important. We need to speak with seasoned grace so that we earn the credibility to talk about what really matters. That we're going to spend eternity somewhere. Either in a place we believe of torment, separated from God, or a place of paradise, in the presence of God. Listen, our demand today is not for the world to agree with us. We believe that day is coming. I believe the day is coming that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until then, may we be men and women of truth and of love in a hostile world.